I knew exactly what they were going to put into the injections and that it would pre present itself as heart attack and cancer. The falsification of our history has gone on for a long time. I call it chaos by design, right? They're trying to undermine the health system, the education system, the food systems, food system. the water systems. So I then got death threats from 2002 and 2003 and 2004. I was getting messages, you know, from the police because we're in touch with the military that they wanted to Julian Assange me. They really, like, they were trying to, you know, right, take me off the pitch. I was in labor at nine months. They actually came in and held me down and injected me. And then I woke up the next year. What and the twins, the, the they twins? died. The twins died? They died, yeah. Information covered up, censorship, corruption. The mainstream media have proven itself to be untrustworthy. I'm here to give a platform for debate, for truth, for open discussion. I'm introducing you to my podcast, Silenced with Tommy Robinson. Who exactly is Tommy Robinson? Or Stephen since then, there's been organised protests across the country in London, Manchester, Leeds. People in their thousands are marching for the There is no such thing in this country as a Muslim free Tommy Robinson. Professor Dolores Carhill is an inventor, founder and shareholder of many worldwide companies with applications in improving the early accurate diagnosis of disease, autoimmune diseases and cancers. Since 2020, she has been working to defend our inalienable rights and freedoms, including working as the co-founder of the World Freedom Alliance with initiatives such as the Freedom Travel Alliance, Freedom Airway and Custodian. She is also known for her support with the World Council for Health and the Doctors for COVID Ethics. Having faced rigorous scrutiny for her views, Dolores is a strong believer in transparent, evidence-based solutions and encourages robust debate with media, scientists and governments to ensure the fundamental freedoms of the people of the world are restored and maintained. We're here for my latest episode of Silence, my podcast, and I'm joined today with retired professor Dolores Carhill. Lovely to be here. I've got to own something, yeah, at the start of this, okay? When COVID hit off, I always, before I talk about Sank, I like to know what I'm talking about. So I looked online to see who was speaking up about what could possibly go, be going on. I arranged to meet yourself. You did, we did, 2020. 2020, we met in Tamworth. Um, you warned me and you described what you believed was happening, why it was happening, who was controlling it. And I will be totally honest, I didn't believe you. And I walked out of there thinking they can't possibly be doing this yeah and i've then sat back dolores i've seen yourself yes. we'll get into what's happened with you yeah um you've come under attack as much as well I, I look your life has been attacked and destroyed they've attempted to but everything you told me that day which is now three years ago i've watched come into fruition i've watched the warnings you gave the the figures you expected the statistic evidence is now there and I apologise because at the time it, it was too alarmist for myself to accept. And I sat and due to what you told me, even in the early days, I sat and I was sceptical of everything. I'm sceptical of the media anyway. But you were the first warning signs for me and the first real person that I saw confronting this problem and warning about this problem. 
And you're right to be skeptical as well, right? You were skeptical. You were honest to me saying, yep. this just sounds crazy. It sounds like unbelievable. Because it does sound unbelievable. The reality. Uh, yeah. And I was speaking to you in private as well. So yes. what I was telling you was gonna was just between in us. Yep. Because obviously what I was trying to do in twenty twenty, before the vaccines were on the market, yep. is to warn people and also to say there was prevention and treatment like vitamin D and hydroxychloroquine, right? Yep, totally. Um but I knew their plan was that the the injections would be so dangerous and there's including the issue around fertility as well as sudden adult death. And I had done publications on sudden adult death triggered by the immune system in 2006 with PhD students. So I knew exactly what they were going to put into the injections and that it would pre present itself as heart attack and cancer. Do you remember? Yep, I remember. And all these uh, chronic fatigue and then potentially infertility and that there would be a huge increase in deaths and that the deaths would happen months or years later and that people wouldn't make the connection unless they were heard about it in the years before because it would be unbelievable and that turned out to be the case uh, my concern well even when i met yourself at which i watched as the freedom movement sprung into action worldwide my concern was linking myself to it in the sense that i thought it would do damage to the movement so we, we met in secret we didn't publicize the no, fact we, we met yeah. because i felt that my, my my the way they've attacked me and the reputation they've given me could damage the message even you're giving or anyone's giving because these demonstrations would then be called far right they'd then be called the all of these list of names so i stayed back and i watched and i saw all the people who spoke up attacked as far right as conspiracy th as all of these same buzzwords anyway yeah. so it, it wouldn't have mattered if i was involved but i didn't want people to blame me for the reason they weren't being taken seriously so i sat back and and used my own platforms to warn people but let's first of all start on and your maybe just to say as well that i was happy to meet you yeah. because i am a free speech advocate right you yeah. know my whole thing is about inalienable rights of freedom of speech yep and part of what people don't know about freedom of speech is for people to hear. You know, it's not just that you speak. It's also that you listen to someone. Yep. And that, of course, my obligation was to warn people. So under the law, act in honor, do no harm. And first do no harm was I had an obligation in law to speak out, to warn people about a medical intervention that may cause them harm. But also you've been speaking out about other things for decades. Yep. And that partly of me meeting you is that if we are both really believe in the principle of free speech, then I should meet you to hear what you have to say, right? So that's why yes, I was to happy to meet you. But we did meet in secret because we didn't want to potentially distract from each other's message at that time. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Can, can we understand, um, you're a retired professor now. What was your, you, you grew up in Ireland? I grew up in Ireland, in Tipperary. In Tipperary. Yes, which is the middle of the countryside on a beautiful farm. Yep. Um, and then Merck Sharp and Dome, a pharmaceutical company, came in my when I was very young, and they started an incinerator. And the first winter that that incinerator happened, all the cattle, all the calves on our farm were born dead, some of them with two heads and two front quarters. And the other farmers, also their cattle, were dying. <coughs> and so... Um, what, year, what year was this? So this right. would be in the mid-70s, okay. yeah, when I was very young. Yep. And then um, a farmer, John Hanrahan, started to speak out. He was very close to the factory and all of his animals died, all his pets died. And his family were very sick and he had been an award-winning farmer with a, a very big, you know, business. Hmm. 
And he had been on like as one of the most excellent farmers, we'll say there was TV programs. And so he was a model, you know, successful farmer doing everything right. And then he lost his entire income. So there was about 200 farmers in the valley of Slivnamon that were affected, but only about five or six farmers uh, over the years kept supporting him. And also when the cattle died on our farm at our own expense, we paid for vets to do the biopsies and take the samples in order to provide evidence for his case. Um, So in the end, only about six farmers supported him over the years and he lost and bankrupted himself essentially, but he won in the Supreme Court in 1988 when I was in my early 20s. But for all that time, I saw how the media and the police and the councils and the politicians and the government system and the legal system fought him all the way as a farmer. And I was involved just as a little child. My dad was, you know, going to meetings. And then because the milk production uh, and people were saying it was now a toxic valley, the farmers could not get people to buy their food, even though it wasn't public, right? Um, And so they then couldn't pay for their farms and their homes. So the banks then in the 70s and 80s started to seize the farms. So my father was in the Irish Farmers Association and also helping um, just as an ordinary farmer, but lots of farmers would come to him. He was very wise and really understood the banking system. Um, And he helped them and also helped that people you know, that farmers would turn up at the auctions but not bid and keep the families in their homes. And then he also wrote to Mark Sharp and Dome privately to say that it wasn't just John Hanrahan, we'll say. And then to undermine us as a family, they photocopied his letter. Now, there was nothing wrong in it, but he was just the propaganda at the time was it was only John Hanrahan and no one else. Okay. And it may be that other farmers were burying the animals so that they wouldn't be tainted, you know, with the things. Yeah, it's very similar to what's okay. going on with me. Um, and years later, but uh, my father wrote to them and said, we, our family gave all the details. We had vets. We were collecting evidence as well. And then they photocopied that letter and put it all up in Mark Sharp and Dome in order to create division, you know, between... Amongst the, the farmers arguing amongst and each us. other. Exactly, yeah. So my father uh, kept obviously going on, but that had showed my interest. And then I, um, I, also our grandmother who lived with us into our 90s, um, my, her husband, she was 30 in 1916. And we had the proclamation of independence through the Irish Republican Brotherhood. And my grandfather was a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood in Tipperary, and he stood for election in 1918. But back then, the British did not want a sovereignty movement. So if you were a member or you stood for election, they were trying to kill you. So then after he stood for election, the British came and burnt down his home with my grandmother with two little kids deliberately to kill them all. And she was pregnant with my father at the time in 1922. But that that happened to everybody. Um, And then he survived that. But we ended up being moved from the family home because of that and impoverished in a way because of what was done, because he was involved in the sovereignty movement. So I'm very honored in a way. I'm now vice president of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. And the, and we, Ireland, was proclaimed as an independent sovereign nation in 1916. And it still is. And that's part of what we're trying to help in England, Scotland and Wales is for people to learn how to... Nobody gives you your sovereignty, right? So England is a sovereign nation. You just have to reestablish the sovereignty from the forces of the Crown and the City of London and agents that are dressed up as police 
and that's part of the process. So, so I grew up in Tipperary, but really my whole childhood was exposed to the legal system and how corrupt it was. So you had been um, sceptic of everything. Yes, you've, but also... from an early yeah. age, you've witnessed the lies, you've yes, seen the yes. corruption, you've seen the powers. Yes. But also I understood as well the 1916, what happened, but in the history books, they gave a completely different, they give the English Account. version of history well, they in Ireland and they completely wrote out the Irish Republican Brotherhood and then smeared it as an organisation. So that even when I was in school, I knew the real history and like everybody of that generation, it wasn't just my family. You know, every family was, the IRB was very popular. So they won an election with 75% of the votes in 1918. They had, you know, like three quarters of the country were behind the Irish Republican Brotherhood. It was a 32 county entire country. Which why they had to shut down. Yes, which is why then they came in and they instigated the so-called civil war in 1921 and 22. And then they brought in the state of Ireland and partitioned the country. But it turns out there's no paperwork for that for Southern Ireland. But just to get back to my story then, I basically had been studying the law and also the thousands of years of prehistory because the falsification of our history has gone on for a long time. But I was actually studying that and my grandmother was also giving me the oral tradition of the law and, and Brehan law, which is thousands of years old. So I then decided as a teenager to, to go into science to really expose the fraud that was going on in the pharmaceutical industry rather than the law, because the law is actually easy to learn for me, whereas I knew you can never become a scientist or a professor from the outside. So that's why even though I was pretty gifted at law and I won w awards for speaking and debating, I decided to study science to become a professor as quick as I could and that every day that I was out of Tipperary, which I loved, I would actually, my life's role would be to expose the fraud. Wow, so you actually chose to be a professor and chose to go into science because of what had happened to your yes, family. to expose. Because of what Big Pharma had done to your family. Yes, yeah. So your whole life has led you here. Yes. Wow. <laughs> so I, and also when I was doing it, I studied the art of war and sabotage and the CIA. And there was books like in 1972 uh, called None Dare Call It a Conspiracy in 1972 that sold 5 million books in the United States of America the year it was published. And what's that book about? And that's a, it's called None Dare Call It a Conspiracy. No. And it basically explained exactly what was going to happen, which turned out to be what we call now Agenda 21. But this book was... Explain to explain people what Agenda 21 is. Yes, but just maybe for people, because I just, if it's okay, I'll just mention the two books. Yep. So none dare call it a conspiracy, which you can get online now free as a PDF, uh, basically explains how they're going to try and undermine the system of law and policing and education in this century. So that's 50 years old. And then in 1992, there's a book from Dr. John Coleman called The Committee of 300. And that explains, which I'm going to, I'll explain what it is. Yeah, I've read on this. Yeah. Is that Agenda 21 is this agenda, which we can go into, but it, then people, I think if they, many people, unless they understand who is behind this, they seem to not be able to accept that it's happening. So I'm just mentioning these, one book is 50 years old and the other book is 30 years old called The Committee of 300. And in the Committee of 300, he actually lists the top 300 people and gives the names and the roles for the people that are actually behind Agenda 21. 
And I find those two books very helpful because they explain what's going to happen in the future, which I also read, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So that's why when I met you, I was able to tell you. Yeah, the knowledge of what's going on. What's going to happen. But it's not that I've done a huge amount of research, but literally it has been explained. And I think this happened. Exactly. But I think what I find is that if people read a book that's 30 years old, it kind of shatters the illusion in a way for them, they kind of think this can't be happening. Well, they don't They're, want it to be happening. I'd say that people don't want to accept it's happening. They don't want to accept Because it. if they accept it's happening, they've got to do something. Yes, and it also means that, say, if your brother or sister who you love or your cousin is a coroner or is an elected politician or is running a hospital, that means that they have to go inward and go, wait a minute, do, do my own family members and friends, do they know it's going on? And are they, they then look at their own country differently and the civil service. And when you go into hospital and they say, no, your mother is 92, she has Alzheimer's, but you can't hold her hand while she's dying, right? That's how people, you know, the part of this Agenda 21 is to control people. And part of that control is around free speech and travel. But they also want to separate families and also to, in a way, destroy the bonds, particularly to interfere in birth and death, and almost in a karmic way, that it actually is traumatizing for a family if you're not there when your loved one is dying. Which was COVID. Which is COVID. But part of the kind of Agenda 21 is to break up families and create division. When you say Agenda 21, what what is Agenda 21? Where is it? Was it a meeting? Was it a, a, an agreement? between politicians, countries, what is it? So that's a very good question. So the what's going on now, which we'll call Agenda 21, has been going on for hundreds of years. So the name for this period is Agenda 21. So I'll tell you what Agenda 21 is. It's a United Nations document that was published in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. And it's the United Nations Agenda for the 21st Century. Okay. They're all published. You can go and find this. Yes. The United Nations Agenda 21, and it's an 800, the original document is 800 pages. So it was published for the first time in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, and it runs from 1992 to the end of this century, so 2100. And then they have it sectioned in different decades. So the decades sections of Agenda 21, the agenda for the 21st century, is Agenda 2020, Agenda 2030, 2040, 2050. So I think there is a lot of confusion and it could be deliberate that people think Agenda 2030 is a different thing to Agenda 2040. It's It's all part of the same thing. So then I, um, you know, when I was doing my science career, my kind of plan was to get into science as much as I could and then retire early. And I set up companies that were very successful in my 20s but my plan was and still is to retire as a professor. And then I developed a technology that is was leading in the world, but it could actually analyze definitively in a court of law adverse events and what caused them. That's my life's work. You've been on a mission. Yes. You have been on a mission. Yes, yes. But part of the thing is that when you look at Agenda 21, they had planned to undermine the health and the life expectancy and the fertility of people through the injection of vaccines. For what purpose? For what purpose? Well, Agenda 21 
and the climate change agenda, they are saying that the resources of the earth, this is their narrative. This is what they say. This is what they say, are limited and therefore in their world, they want to reduce the number of people. And that's Agenda 21. So this is not you saying it. It's not your presumption. This is what the United Nations in their document in, in, in their documents say, yes. we need to depopulate this planet. Yes. And so they have done it, particularly through the education system in the last two generations, we'll say, that if people love the earth, they shouldn't have children. And we're seeing that. And we're seeing Our that. Our birth rate has never been so low in Europe. Exactly. But I suppose what people didn't know, and there was a, a lot of publications. So I started my PhD in 1989. Um, so I was aware of this because it was well written, right? You know, this is not a secret, even though people now um, find it hard to believe. It's all there. It was actually underpinning all the government programs, right? Everywhere, in every country, this process of trying to reduce population. So in China at the time, they were doing the one child policy, but actually it was the agenda for the whole world. So because I knew that I would need to know how governments work, I, in my 20s, um, was very successful in my career. So I, I had, I went from being a postdoc, applied for five grants and got the equivalent of 28 million funding in one year. So I ended up going from working as a postdoc, a young postdoc, to having 30 people working for me. Was it for the European Union? Well, no. Well, I was in Berlin in the Max Planck at the time, at that stage, but I, I had gone there as a postdoc because I, I had um, the idea The they were doing new techniques. PCR was only invented. The, uh, he had just, Carrie Mullins had just got the Nobel Prize and Professor Hans Lehrach, who was a leading light in the world, um, was inventing or a leader for this human genome project that was just established. So I knew that the attack for people would be in their immune system and in their blood, which is not DNA, it's protein. So I went to him and said, I have an idea for an invention that could advance dealing with thousands of proteins in high throughput, right? And then he even thought a bit like you, he thought, well, we're only just starting on DNA and protein is about a hundred times to a thousand times more complicated. And he said, this, there's no way you're going to do this, but he gave me a one-year contract as a postdoc, you know, in a way kind of thinking this is not. Yeah. And in the process of that, I was in a group and the group leader became unwell. And he said, Dolores, you have to take on these five people and you have to find money for all their salaries for the next five years. So I didn't want to do it, but he said, you have to do it. So I wrote five grants. I had invented a technology before I came there filed the patents because you need to secure it. Otherwise, they lock you out of your own technology. The patents were granted and I wrote grants and the grants were all funded. So I became a very big, uh, you know, by the next year, I then had 30 people working for me and I won lots of awards, right? So that then became a technology that is able to look in a tiny drop of blood and give you your immune system history. But if you have been injected with something, we can also profile that and show that so say if you had multiple sclerosis we could distinguish was it multiple sclerosis naturally or Why was it induced to so then because i had so many grants a lot of the funding agencies so it wasn't i was in the max planck but i got funding from the german government the german human genome project and the european union as well 
But because I had no administrative support, I used, literally was working, you know, 18 hours a day. To it's, a, it's quite a lot of work to have 30 employees and no administrative staff. So when I would go to the government meetings, I would make them more efficient, you know, because I didn't have too much time, right? Yeah. So then they said, well, would you like to come and advise us? So I became very quickly nominated by the German Minister for Science um, involved in advising Germany. And then I was on the Irish Government Advisory Science Council. And then from my early 20s, I was at the very high level in the European Union and also what's called an innovation radar expert. I would actually scan in every area of society for innovations that would be helpful. Um, and then in 2013, 2014, because Ireland had been attacked really by the banking system, you know, the banking crash, we were, you know, Portugal yeah. and Spain, Ireland and Italy, that the Irish government um, nominated me to be what's called a seconded national expert to Europe in order to defend Ireland in Europe, you know, and, and have people at high level. So the unit that I was interviewed for and got was the unit for the global coordination of the world was my role in health globally um, and also for all interactions, you know, banking and innovation and every aspect, food between Europe and Asia, particularly China and South Korea. So I also prepared for the first plenum with China with President Xi between the European Union. Now, the only reason I'm saying that is that I knew that what Agenda 21 is doing is actually, I call it chaos by design, right? They're trying to undermine the health system, the education system, the food systems, food system. the water systems. So we needed people to know how do you rebuild countries and nations, right? Fundamentally, and the unit that I worked in in the global coordination of the world, often if there was a natural disaster or a civil war, the people that worked in that unit were the ones who had spent their lives rebuilding nations in a good way. They were good people. So when I was there, I learned and built a network in addition to the other, we'll say, experiences that I've had is how do you actually rebuild nations? For how do you do it practically? And that's in a way what I'm trying to do now in Ireland and in other countries. Now. And you've done that specifically because you were aware to prepare. that they're going to intentionally yes. destroy society. So Agenda 21 is really chaos by design. So create chaos, i.e. get kill all the cattle, which we're in the process yes. of doing now around Europe, bring in new policies, which mean they have to yes. exterminate cattle. They, we have to hit nitrogen targets, which then is going to make less food. Yes. Which by purpose is bringing in chaos. Exactly. There's going to be a start. There's going to be a food. And chaos. the same will say, you know, in the health system or in the care home systems, right? If you're a nurse previously, yep. you would be very kind and loving. And if someone was dying, obviously you wouldn't give them something that was going to progress, make them die, right? You would never put a thing saying nil by mouth, you know, no food, no water. You wouldn't do that to an animal. So part of what they've done in Agenda 21 is to un undermine the nurses and doctors and the administrative staff in the health system to fire the people who won't be involved in really abusing the life of people, right? You know, either coercing them into an injection they don't want in order to give them treatment from a heart attack. That's actually a criminal offence. But what they've done is, like I I'm working with a nurse in Sweden and she has 700 nurses that all lost their job or their profession because they would not coerce people, you know, or do criminal acts to people. During COVID? During COVID, right. So, so that's just an example. So the same in the care homes, you know, where they said to these people, these are not prisoners, these are our grandparents or our loved ones, right? That they couldn't meet their family for years, right? 
Now, in a care home, you don't have the right to do that. These people are not prisoners. They should. They have the right to leave a care home like ordinary men and women. So that's just and the same in education, right? They're undermining the the excellence and the rigor in education at every level. So this is planned, and so partly why I chose the government advisory roles, um, and then to learn how you actually. Like, so a lot of that work was voluntary, right? Not all of it, because when I was a an, an expert or an independent radar expert, you would be paid per day. But when I was seconded national expert, I was working in the European Union full time, seconded or given leave of absence from my job as a full university professor, which I was for 20 years. That was a very prestigious position. But I took all of those roles because there, I found there are not very many people who can actually see the big picture, right? Everyone, their Agenda 21 makes you an expert in a very small area. And in a way, that is de-skilling people, right? So even the farmers are just focusing on grants or if somebody says you have to kill all your cattle and we'll give you money, okay. they're going ahead with it, even though it means that if they want to pass on the farm to their sons or daughters, there won't be any animals there. So they won't actually, if they were dairy farmers or beef farmers. You say, so Holland now are giving £100,000 for farmers to take Same in Ireland. To yeah. give up their farms. So same in Ireland. Same in Ireland. Like and, they're, and they're also trying to get them to turn them into corporations or companies, right? Which is because I think that maybe that in the law, once it's land and property, you have a different status. Whereas if you turn it into a, a company, then it's a different series of laws that apply. But it also means if you were uh, 35 and your father or mother was 70 and they pass on the farm to you, there's no animals there. So how are you going to make money? When you say you've said they a few times, who's they? Very good. So that's why the the book, The Committee of 300. That's the they. Yes, from 1992, actually goes through the people then, like we say Tony Benn or the prime, but they actually go through the roles. Okay. So in this agenda, um, it's like different layers. So the people that we see who are prime ministers or the head of the European Union, it's like they're the layers of the puppets, you know, like the Punch and Judy. And then literally there's layers above that. So there's someone behind Joe Biden. It's not Joe Biden that's running America. Is that what you <laughs> So I think that's why this book, The Committee of 300 from 1992, goes into it that there are 300 roles in the world. And so you cannot be the prime minister of England, we'll say, or prime minister of Britain without being approved by the committee of 300, which means you kind of have a dual role and the same as we say the head of the IMF or the World Health Organization, you know? So when you're saying, so that's the answer to who they are, there are 300 jobs in the world. So it could be the head of the Bank of International Settlements, the head of the United Nations, the head of the International Monetary Fund, the head of the European Commission, the president of the European Union, do you know what I mean? The yeah. president of Canada or whatever, prime minister of Canada, president of America, they're the 300. And you will not be uh, elected or you will not be nominated to stand for election or proposed unless you are involved in the background agenda, Agenda 21. And that's who they are. Okay. Yeah, and now it seems hard to believe. No, yeah, well, it would have sound all of this, even when I met you three years ago, would sound half the hard to believe. But anyone who's had their eyes open to COVID, to what's gone on, to looking at the wider picture of thinking, I think most people watching this know something isn't right. 
something's not right what's going on in the world, something's not right what's That's going right. on climate change. Intuitively. Something, yeah, we know something's not right, but most people can't put their finger on what it is. Yes, so that's why I, it's good to get the opportunity to highlight again the book, None Dare Call It a Conspiracy, which is freely available, 1972, 1992, The Committee of 300, and then for people to look up the United Nations and then Agenda 21, and then the, the full document is there, 1992, and then that's if you do want to research it. And both of those books you can read in a few hours, you know, the first books? Yeah. And then with the like 800 page document for the United Nations, you can just flick through around depopulation and around what they're going to do to the education. And what they do is they they have like their 17 goals or whatever. But in a way, all of it is that, you know, we will prevent farmers growing what we don't want is in a way trying to control farming. You know, they pitch it like we will ensure uh, travel is safe we'll say but what they're trying to do then is interfere you know it's a when they say safe so that will limit how far we can travel because it's not safe for the planet exactly or for climate change or whatever and of course carbon dioxide it's a bit like the masks deprived people of oxygen and of course you know a generation ago people would obviously go well you need oxygen and for child development or pregnant mother it would be like you wouldn't smother you know someone who needs oxygen in order for their body to function so their brains will function um, so the idea of depriving people of oxygen, which they did through the masks, was also symbolic um, because oxygen is, you know, if people thought about it or had the capacity, they want to see in a way, have they undermined the critical thinking of people that, you know, if you, you were rational. You mask yourself up in a hot summer's day on your own on the beach. Yes, but a mother or a grandmother should think, well, I wouldn't put a mask on a seven-year-old who's going to go and play football, right? That wouldn't, people would just go, well, why would you put a mask on a child and restrict their oxygen supply? They're going to get dizzy and faint. Um, But it's the same thing that carbon dioxide is what plants need to breathe. And we're at some of the lowest levels of carbon dioxide currently. And if you want plants to grow, you add five times more carbon dioxide to greenhouses because the carbon dioxide level was, you know, much higher previously. Mm. So there is no, the whole carbon dioxide is actually a mockery, an inversion. Carbon dioxide is good and we need more. And it would be if we did have more carbon dioxide, it would actually increase the growing capacity in Africa. It's the cheapest way to prevent hunger and starvation in the world, right? So it's the exact opposite of the truth. This podcast is brought to you by Urban Scoop. Any support to carry on this work will be greatly appreciated. Please visit urbanscoop.news forward slash support us. Thank you. And all of this is not just, is about depopulation. All of this is their, is their, their main goal is to, so the vaccines is to, you talked about infertility. It's not their main goal. No, what's their main goal? No, it's not their main goal. But but this is a process to their goal. It's yes, it's so one of the things you're right about the vaccine. So in the tetanus injection, which is um, there has been since the 1990s, uh, literally components of it um, that can cause infertility. Right. So you're right. There is an infertility or an agenda for for people to have less children. But that's not the major goal. The major goal is to control people, to have power over people. 
So where, what jobs they can take, uh, where they can travel, where they live, and their communication, and then to have a series of aspects like LGBTQ or climate change or the virus or COVID-19 that within families and within friendship groups that people will be divided in their conversation in order so that the real goal is that people are kind of isolated emotionally and that they don't have the big families that they had before, right? And also that to create a multi-generational division. Now, the reason why they want to do that, I think, is that there has this agenda has been going on for centuries and that they knew that once people had the ability to travel and to educate themselves, the control that the city of London and the crown and the legal system and the banking system has that is actually based on unlawful fraud would be exposed. And that would undermine, because in law, if you commit fraud in the banks and mortgages or this, the legal system. I've got 12 months of mortgage fraud. <laughs> yeah. No, the thing is, if it's fraud, and this is in a way. 18, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, 18. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it weren't no mortgage fraud, but anyway. That's right. That's yeah, right. total manipulation of the law. Yeah. So the thing is that if what they're doing in the legal and banking and political systems and the regulatory systems, it's a bit like what's happening in the so-called health systems. If that's actually, they're not doing their job, right? They're putting poisons on the market and the regulators and the coroners and the pathologists and the police are not investigating it. It's a similar kind of thing between the legal system, the politicians, the regulatory system and the banking system, that if there's a lot of people, it will be exposed and then the societies, men and women, will actually say, we want to stop this criminal activity. And actually, like, what we want to do is have lawful money and, right, lawful processes, lawful businesses and lawful schools, lawful health systems where people don't go around killing each other, right? So they know that's coming, the exposure of this, the frauds that's been going on. And so part of what's really going on is to try and delay or stop the exposure of them by really undermining people who have figured it out so that they have no free speech, but also to try and literally, you know, affect the mental capacity through the vaccines is actually reducing the mental capacity of younger generations. And also the education system is, it's a miseducation. People are getting a whole series of lies and then they're filling their heads with climate change, LGBTQ, so that these people will really not have the resources to challenge it if our generation don't stop them. So that's it's not about depopulation for that sake. It's to have less people for them to actually interact with that, that are going to be a tsunami. Less people expose. willing to resist. Yes, or even physically, physically able, able to, to exist or to be on, you know, literally less people. So it's not that they just want to reduce the population for no reason. You know, the way I see it is this is a cartel or a mafia, right? Yep. And we'll say up to two or three generations ago, if you lived in, in France or in Ireland or in Australia or in Brazil, you would only know one solicitor and one doctor and one policeman, right? And the chances are you wouldn't need very many people in Brazil or in Nigeria or in Ireland to actually run this 
interaction because people were going into the buildings as courts or the bank manager, presuming that everything, they were the bank manager and the man dressed up as a judge was a man dressed up as a, was a judge, right? But people would never have been able to figure out that it was a a cartel that has infiltrated the banking and the lawful system and the politicians, right? So they, and you would have lived peacefully, but of course they knew back, we'll say a hundred years ago, that this, now there are so many people around, the, the people are naturally bright and people were already figuring out that what was going on was unlawful. And so they media. literally had to have an agenda. And in a way, a lot of this started in 1911 and 1913 through the introduction of the welfare system and through the moving of lawful money and lawful money created by um, banks that were lawfully under the supervision of people, right, in the law and accountable to the private banking federal, so-called Federal Reserve System, which is literally a cartel, a private cartel deciding that they will create the money out of nothing, loan it at interest to people and loan mortgages, which are actually also fraud, right? And that people spend 20 years of their lives paying back money that's actually a fraud, the paperwork. And then the legal system is also a cartel that has infiltrated the what people think of as the courts, and they are then not investigating the fraud in the banking system or the politicians. Now, that sounds unbelievable, but if you have set up a uh, hundred years, and and just to say what I think really happened is that very powerful families hundreds of years ago decided that their children would be at a, an advantage in the future, right? You know, this is where it came from, right? So say if we were the uh, wealthy people hundreds of years ago, and they decide, well, we want our descendants that are not yet born, but in the future to have an advantage. And then to make the division between the wealth of our descendants in the future to be so great that no oh, other families would actually, but then to kind of hide it. And then just to give you one phrase in 1515 so this runs very deep it runs in the crown in the monarchy in the vatican and through washington dc that cardinal wolsey in 1515 when martin luther who wrote his 90 points or 90 theses and the printing press they couldn't stop it that cardinal wolsey who was working with henry the eighth on it said the phrase in 1515 learning against learning that we will set up a process in the world of education and academia that all the books printed would be lies, right? So that all the books... Is that what learning against learning means? Learning against learning. He came up with this phrase, learning against learning, that everything would be the opposite, would be consistent in this cartel, so that even if in the future, when they looked back, you know, 300 years, the academics in the future, in the learning and academia would go... Well, all of these books say this, Say this, right? Learning against learning. And literally so that, so a guy called Hausman about 100 years ago said that the lie will be so big that only one in a million people will figure it out and they will, thought, they will be thought to be lunatics. Which is essentially the narrative that's been driven towards anyone who spoke out about it. it. Conspiracy theorist, lunatic mad just out of a doctor previously doctor that's right anthony um campbell and he's now they're describing him as a crank 
because yes. he's sort of piecing things together. But the reason why people like me in a way, so that's why in my career, uh, you know, and I actually um, in in my 20s and 30s was planning to take early retirement as a professor. So in my 30s, which most people don't do, right? So I planned to retire at 60 and then to be out at 50 and I applied to retire at age 49. And then the university said, yes, we will administer your retirement. And then when it came to it that I said at 51, I wanted to retire, they didn't. And I then took the university to the financial ombudsman, you know, to the higher education authority, to the minister for education in 2017, 18, 19, to administer my retirement. Why would it? And they didn't allow me to retire. Now, I think is that they knew. So I had set up this, these successful companies in my 20s, which I, w I had invented a technology that would improve the diagnosis of autoimmune diseases. So back then, if you had the symptoms of multiple cirrhosis, it was taken on average 12 years to be properly diagnosed. And a lot of the symptoms of autoimmune diseases are similar, right? Um, and also in my companies, we were advocating vitamin D and nutrition, that you might be predisposed to autoimmune disease, but a lot of the times the symptoms were stress or malnutrition. But it's often with people, if you have some symptoms and you're correctly diagnosed and you're predisposed to alopecia or arthritis or lupus or multiple cirrhosis, if someone says you can actually reduce the painful symptoms by Eat. eating properly and drinking very good water, um, and we did that in my company's 20,000 people in clinical trials, and I improved the diagnostic, the diagnostic test. But also what was going on 20, 30 years ago was that they were diagnosing people with cancer through tests that were not accurate. They didn't have cancer, right? Saying they had cancer. Where was giving this? Them, where, was, where was this? This was in Germany, but okay. it's worldwide, right? Okay. So part of the reason why I invented my high-content protein arrays and high-content antibody arrays was that when you look at Agenda 21, it was going to be delivered through fraudulent testing. PCRs? PCR testing to give people a diagnosis that, that they didn't have shit. to then implement either a chemotherapy that would either make them sick or die, right? 97% of people die from the actual chemotherapy. So that if you don't have cancer, ovarian cancer, right, you don't have it, you get a test that's fraudulent. It says you have stage four ovarian cancer. They give you chemotherapy and 97 people out of 100 die from the chemotherapy. Everyone goes, well, I got died of cancer, died of cancer, right? So because I knew that, I invented and patented and like was very successful in conferences. And we were the world leading lab at identifying whether a test was accurate or not. And also because of my knowledge of the law, I was then challenging the big pharmaceutical companies and diagnostic companies to withdraw their test off the market. It was fraudulent and telling the regulatory authorities, right, and publishing it, right? Now, one of the things I did very early in my 20s because I did a lot of work for free for everybody Actually, it was quite funny. I was working so much in the Max Planck that the unions, I didn't know about it, but they took a case to say I had to leave the building for six hours between three in the morning and nine in the Max Planck because I don't need much sleep. And I lived like 10 minutes away, so I might go home, you know, like get three hours sleep and come back. So they actually meant that I had to leave like at least six hours a day. But I was doing like a lot of work to prepare for now. Um, but so one of the things that I had worked for the government and I was 
um, increasing the efficiency of, say, if they had 100,000 to pay into a research to reduce, you know, diabetes or whatever, that I was making the delivery, what the results that they were getting from the money to get a much higher impact by saying, instead of just writing reports, can we have it that we have publications or PhD students as a metric, you know, rather than just waffle that you'd actually have results, mm. right? Um, and so because of that, I also then proposed in my 20s that I knew the solution to all this is that all promotions in science and in medicine should be based on that if you write a publication, that whatever you say you've invented an antibody or a virus or a test or a computer model should be in a public repository, it's called, right? A republicly accessible for free. And that other people can then check whether what so you've said is very says, simple. So they can check over their designs. Yes, so, so that I was advocating because I was at a very high level on these government and EU. And I think Irish people are quite, you know, because we're native speakers of English or whatever. You know, in the EU, I used to actually get things done in an amicable way, you know, just because being Irish, I guess, right? Yeah. So that a lot of the time the system was very grateful that I would kind of get things done where they mightn't have the opportunity if it was other people, you know, just to mediate or whatever. So I then asked with the uh, Professor Hans Lehrach and uh, Max Planck was one of the leaders in the world in the Human Genome Sequencing Project, if they would fund, we wrote a grant for 40 technical people and scientists to be funded by the German taxpayer for 10 years to set up what, what became the resource center of the German Human Genome Project on the condition that I would put all of my research into this repository so that if I said something that was wrong, that for 10 years, anyone could can order my thing for free, they would get them all for free. Okay. Um, and that if what I was saying was wrong, was wrong, then people could call me out. So I then became one of the world leaders in research integrity. And then I was on the Nobel Prize nominating committee for years and also investigating fraud in science, right? Which is very easy to do. So I have like qualifications in uh, regulatory, you know, financial regulation and procurement and fraud investigation as well, right? So part of the thing is if you make this, so I was saying to the governments around the world, all they have to do is put like 5% or 2% of the research funding money into a research repository and that promotion and your even, you know, indexes as a scientist would be based on how reproducible, how much integrity was in what you'd done. And the whole COVID-19 thing would have been fixed. Because it would right? have been checked. Because it would have been checked. So when I say I wanted to retire, I wanted to retire to put the, my own money into setting up a company that would do two things that would be available to, to test things like water PCR testing, because we were the number one, my, my group and my company were the number one in the world about checking the integrity of diagnostic testing, right, or any testing. And that if you applied that, I wanted to retire in 2017, 2018, to set up a company that would be available to check tests. You know, I put my own money into it, but also would be able to take samples from people after the injection to I show whether it was that... Legit or if it was Yes, to show if they're at, so if you had a heart attack or shortness of breath, we can take a tiny amount of blood and then in a court of law, right? Because we know how to do it. 
uh, would be able to provide the evidence to and blindly we would be able to tell we wouldn't need to know what vaccine you were injected with we, we could do it blindly for a court to say you send it to us we don't need to know who this person is and we'll tell you what injection and whether it's related to an adverse event so my suspicion is that they didn't and also, because I thought I was going to be retired in 2017, 2018, I enrolled to do a diploma in law to become like a barrister in their world in four years, like two years to do a diploma in law, two years to be a barrister. That was an evening and weekend course. And I also enrolled to be a regulator professionally, which was like a day course. So I had planned to retire in 2018 so that by 2019, 20, I would be able to be a barrister because I knew I wouldn't have the money to hire a barrister in their world as well as my knowledge of the law and also to be qualified as a regulator to do the clinical trials, which I would be able to do anyway, to do the studies, to look at adverse events for the injections that would happen in 2020, 2021. But they didn't administer my retirement and I went to the higher education, well, appealed within University College Dublin in their process, then went to the Higher Education Authority, they wouldn't administer it, then went to the Department of Education, who wouldn't administer. And I became a qualified financial advisor in 2018 to be a pension advisor, so that I was saying as well as a qualified pensions advisor, this is maladministration, it's actually essentially fraud. But I was doing it in a very professional way, because I had actually put in 470,000 extra into my pension to retire early, which I ended up because they didn't do it. I had to cash it in. And then I lost around 200,000 of that in 2019 because they didn't administer it. And I didn't get that pension. They didn't actually administer that pension properly. But I did force them. They were trying to then fire me for gross misconduct for speaking out. But I then got them to administer my pension. But I think the reason why they didn't do it was that if I was retired, they I had told them I, had, I, w I was retiring, you know, honestly, right? I, w I had paid for years, but also that I had to tell them I had applied for these courses or whatever. And I think they didn't administer my retirement, but also I would be free to set up another company that would be able to look at testing. So this was 2018, 2019. And also I wanted to look at the adverse events for the HPV vaccine. And, you know, I was saying that in, in my speeches, and I think that's why they didn't want me to administer my retirement. I was about to say, so your entire life and the direction of your life, you've chosen specifically on exposing what you have seen from an early age has happened and what you foresee about to happen. Yes. Every move you've made, then you're going to get this qualification or just look at this. I was about to ask you, when you have a committee of 300 or whoever's the, whoever has our government as puppets, whoever is in control of the world's agenda, what do they do? What do they do when they see someone like yourself? Because what I've come to realise is it's like a jigsaw. I've obviously spoke about the issues I speak about, which also affect their narrative. But then people would talk about transgenderism, which is another one in there is for population control. Someone would talk about this. So whoever's rising up and talking about these issues all over the world are coming under similar attacks and allegations. So what has, what has happened to you since as a professional and since you attempted to speak? Take me through that. Since you attempted talking out, you made a video and you said, hold on a minute, what's happened? 
in your life? Well, so the thing is, I suppose I've been studying their manuals, you know, like the CIA of which were written decades ago for how they would attack people when they spoke out. So that's all a plan. So I'm only prefacing what I'm going to say in that when you read it and you know 20, 30 years ago what's going to happen to you, it's not as bad, right? So when I just see things happening, so... um, well, I suppose I initially started speaking out in 2001 and two, you know, that time. Um, and I was came under pressure and they tried to give me positions, we'll say, or get funding from the United States or DARPA. They tried to buy you? Yes, to um, where they, and they, I also got a grant to come back to Ireland, which I thought was an honest grant, uh, it was huge. It was very, you know, it was a lot of work, but I now found that they did that to other people around the world that I didn't know in 2001, 2003, right? Yeah. That if somebody was inventing technologies that would be useful in decades to come, like my one, that they gave them huge funding to go to their home country, and then within a year or two, they would fire them under false pretenses. Okay. So, you know, Judy Mikovich a little bit was kind of similar. You know, she was speaking out as a technician, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And they knew that What she, was she speaking out about? Well, she was exposing the whole virus uh, issue and that there were well viruses or whatever that they were putting agents into the vaccines that could potentially cause huge harm okay. and diseases and symptoms. Yep. And she was also a bit like me, my technology showed that the antibodies and the tests that were being sold were not, you know, you would be doing a PhD and we'll say if it was for prostate cancer, right? And then you're sold, well, this, you buy this antibody and if it's positive, someone has prostate cancer. But what I did was actually check that the antibody that you were purchasing actually was what it said it was and found out it wasn't, right? So that it was actually fraud. So that meant the test was fraud. What Judy Mikovich was doing was fundamentally looking at the components of what she was being given from papers and protocols and checking that the thing that you buy or what's in the vaccine or whatever is actually what it is in a very rigorous way. And then they went after her professionally as a very young person. What did they do to her? Well, they, for her, they tried to fire her from various roles because she was working in government labs. And then she ended up meeting a very, um, a professor that had, was lots of integrity. And then he encouraged her to do a PhD and also protected her when, you know, Dr. Fauci that's written in many books was trying to fire her, right? Because together they were exposing what was going on. So for me in 2001, two and three, they were trying to undermine what I was doing. Um, and then I gave evidence after 9-11 because I also ran one of these class three, you know, like the Wuhan lab. I became qualified to run those labs because I knew in the future um, this would be part of the thing. So I, I ran one of those labs and I became one of the leading people in Europe because you need to, I renovate property and know a lot about designing buildings and uh, restoring buildings, so I'm able. To, I'm one of the people that are competent to take over the building of these labs. Which there's not that many people who have the expertise in building design reconstruction as well as the qualification. So after 9/11, I was invited over to give evidence to Congress, 
And I mentioned at that that it was, wasn't going to be planes into towers. It would be through the food and the vaccine agenda. And then the military there who were at that meeting just said, you know, shut up and sit down. But obviously, in a way, I wanted them to know that I knew as well, right? There's a certain level that if they think they're going to be exposed, it actually slows them down a bit. So I then got death threats from 2002 and 2003 and 2004. Um, and then um, under false pretenses for talking to the funding agency in 2005, I was fired from the job, like under false pretenses. And then I had, uh, in October, I was in a coma from 2005 to 2006, following death threats. You was in a coma? In a coma, in a hospital. How did you end up in a coma? Um, well, I had death threats previously that they were going to do something to me. Yep. Um, and I happened to be seven, well, I was pregnant with twins at the time. So when I was in labor at nine months, they actually came in and held me down and injected me. And then I woke up the next year. But So you, was happy, you, you went into labor and you woke up a year later? I woke up months later, yeah. And what and happened the twins, to, your, and what happened to the they twins? died. The twins died? They died, yeah. So they left me there. And my whatever uterus, they injected me with something. My uterus ruptured and they left me there. You know, and so the twins died, yeah. They're your first children? No, I have one daughter who's 19. So you've gone into labour, you've woke up months later. Well, I knew that there was death threat. So I was, I was, wait, when they injected me, I just said, I forgive you, but, you know, save my children, which they didn't do. You know, like they held me down, injected me with something. I felt my uterus rupturing, I was bleeding out and they left me there. At this time, did you did you go to the police about anything? No, no. I mean, I knew that there was nobody was going to. No. But I mean, it took me. I, I spent. I had abdominal sepsis, which was untreatable, so I was unwell. Um, and partly, you know, I had very little time to live. We'll say two thousand and five, two thousand and six. Um, so I was in, going in and out of organ failure for those years. But I kept working in the EU. It was because I they had left me to die. We'll say. Um, I had bled out so much that they couldn't operate on me, you know? Mm. So I had abdominal sepsis for eight years. Now, most people with sepsis die within three weeks. It's, you know, you, you have go into organ failure. Yeah. And you're quite unwell. But anyway, um, so I just kept working on this, right? And then I went in and out of when I would work, say if I was in Brussels or whatever, I would know that I was going to collapse. So I go into hospital and then I might go into a coma or an induced coma. You know, but I would then come out after a few days and keep working. So you wouldn't really notice from my CV. And eventually I only had months to live, you know, from about 2017, 18. Um, but I kept working. So that's why I don't have any fear of dying or anything. And then and no one would operate on me because um, I had these adhesions around my aorta, around my back, so that they were afraid if they just started the operation that I would die. So no one would take the risk. But eventually I was dying anyway in uh, 2014 so they three surgeons took the risk you know but I settled my affairs we'll say as if I wouldn't survive um, and then the the operation in 2014 was a complete success mm. and then I'm back to the health I was but I'm much that's you know I have the legacy of having when you have sepsis you you swell up you know your whole body like balloons out or whatever and um, and then in 2014, I, I, that was a successful operation. So I'm then healthy again and carry on. 
But some of the things why I've paid in a lot of money to retire early that in 2006, I had like a life expectancy of months, you know, for all that time. So I paid into early retirement. Now, if I wanted to, I could have just never worked again from 2006. You know, I had an insurance and in the university, but I kept working. So that's why it was particularly shameful that University College Dublin didn't administer my retirement when I could have in 2005 just not worked as a professor because your insurance because I had a terminal illness. Basically, I had a life-threatening, you know, illness. Yeah. yeah. So, but I worked all the time, never really, except for when I was in comas or in hospital, I never was otherwise sick. Yeah. And it wasn't very often. It might only be a week, a year. I was able to manage it. Um. So that I, but I worked all that time kind of in, the, because my life expectancy was reduced that I would retire at 50 because I did, I don't have, you know, I have a reduced life expectancy overall because of the damage to my organs, because they let me bleed out and that damages all your internal organs. You know, you're literally stewing in, you know, whatever septic mass for years. Um, yeah, so then in 2014, then I'm now healthy again, but I did want to retire in 2017 in order to whatever time I have. Um, spend as much time as I could to challenge this agenda. So then what, what happened then, of course, in 2020, and that is only, um, now it, it was shameful that I really wanted to retire, you know, and then University College Dublin instigated in 2021, they wrote to me on the 15th of March, the head of the School of Medicine, that if I spoke at a rally on the 17th of March in Dublin, this was that, a rally that was organised about COVID. That lockdowns. I was one of the organisers of. Okay. And was in Herbert Park, which was within a mile of my house, so that even in their world, um, I would be within the five mile limit. It was kind of fun, you know, mm. that they wrote to me two days before and said, if, if I spoke on a bank holiday a day off, two days later, they would instigate proceedings of gross misconduct to fire me as a full professor with an unblemished record on the Nobel Prize nominating Vinnie. And they did on the 18th of March, they instigated proceedings. Now, because, you know, they couldn't find anything that I had said that was wrong, they they said they would instigate proceedings for something I would say in the future, right? <laughs> Which is an impossible situation. So they were trying, they were saying to the world, we want to fire you for gross misconduct, while I had spent from 2017 trying to get them to administer my retirement. retirement. <laughs> so eventually- All you had to do was organize a demonstration. Yeah, but, but I mean, it was, you know. <laughs> so then actually in September, I got a phone call from one of the investigating officers, right? Saying that they were supposed to administer or investigate within a month. And this was now over five years later and they hadn't done their job. So they rang me to say they're never going to like, right, investigate and never going to even publish a report. This was their job, right? And then I was on the phone and I said, if you don't, I said, I, I want to do something else in October 2021. If you don't administer, get them to administer my pension, uh, I'm going to expose what's going on, right? You know what I mean? Because you have a role. They're not administering my pension. I've applied for years to do it. And I said, I'll give you seven days. Otherwise, I will instigate proceedings against you, right? For not, for engaging in fraud, really, right? Because that was, uh, it was worth my, I had paid in like a huge amount of money into this pension. Um, so within seven days, I gave them seven days. And on the seventh day, I got a letter from UCD to say my pension was administered, right? And I had retired on like the 16th of September, 2021. 
but the university magazine and all of the articles of the Indo- Irish Times and the Independent, they imply that I had been fired for gross misconduct okay. and that my professor title had been taken away, which it hadn't, right? Okay. Yeah. Yep. So that's the kind of thing. But really, in the big... And of course... So they, yeah. yeah, I was in the banking system. I can't open an account and Binance, Kraken, Coinbase, you know, all the cryptocurrencies uh, locked m- whatever money I had there. Um, and also PayPal and Stripe and GoDaddy t- uh, stopped. You know, I can't open an account. When we had done a GoFundMe for the first Trafalgar Square. Um, first Trafalgar Square demonstration over COVID. Which I, exactly, yeah. Yeah, in around July 2020 with Kate Shabarani. She and I on a phone call. She was great. I, yeah, I, I said to her on a phone call, I would love to do a rally in England and I wanted to exercise my right to travel. And we knew there were more people in England speaking out and th- she's a nurse and I was saying... I'm really, there were some doctors and some, you know, people in Ireland speaking out. This was, uh, I had spoken, I would say, May of 2020 publicly. And this was around June of 2020. And I said to her strategically, so I had actually planned the World Doctors Alliance, the World Freedom Alliance, you know, years before. But I had said to her, we, if could we actually start, the, you know, speaking together? So she helped me. She was one, he, she and I were the people who said, right, let's do Trafalgar Square. Um, but then we did a GoFundMe to do it, but I paid for sound equipment. There's about 10 people that we actually paid, but we would put the invoices, you know, up for the GoFundMe yep. to just get the amount of money after we spend it, right? Yep. So it came to be about 15000 for the equipment. And the end of the GoFundMe was midday when the, um, the in July when the rally was. But what PayPal did was gave the money back to everyone. Yep. And I've been, I've been exactly here. Yeah. But, but subsequently, PayPal shut down my accounts and Stripe and GoDaddy. And when we did Freedom Travel Alliance, the airline, after a month, they shut down our email, ProtonMail, and they took the money, the money that people had paid in the first month um, in order so that we would get a bad reputation and be out of pocket and stuff like that. So, But that, in a way, they're the kind of things that have happened to me. But I... I've find seen them that, trivial, yeah. I saw looking at an article earlier, there was talk that you had a warrant out for your arrest. Yes, allegedly. Yes, there are. Yes. Yes. So what those, um, I so the ones, the UK was for, so when we organized it in July 2020, Trafalgar Square, under the COVID-19 Act, which is unlawful, they said that if you organize a meeting of more than seven people outdoors in the summer, it was a 2000 fine and or two years in prison. So I was the named organizer, one of the organizers, right? For the demonstration that went ahead? That for the demonstration that went ahead okay. in Trafalgar Square was one of the biggest in the world at the time, was about 40,000 people because I knew the law, right? So what I, the, the whole thing in the law is you have to have standing, you know, you have to do something and then they come into the room. Yeah, exactly. So then I was also the organizer because that was so successful that we had another rally that Kate and all of the people that ended up being in the World Doctors Alliance, you know, uh, and she has the British Nurses Alliance and I support her. But we organized another rally, which was about a million people in August 2020 and then other ones in September. But the the alleged warrant um, was in August 2020. Uh, So, but they, I own, it was only initiated on the 15th of March, 2021, the same day as University College Dublin wrote to me, right? This is what became the warrant. Yeah. But 
that week as well, I had been chair and a member of a new political party called Irish Freedom Party. Oh, so you've stepped into you've stepped into politics, and then they've gone bang. Yes, well, I had stood for election in 2019 because okay. you you know University College Dublin weren't administering my retirement, and I just thought, okay, I will uh, stand for election for the European elections with with just myself. And I actually became the highest independent. So 24 people were standing. I really had no campaign. I just wrote my own leaflet myself. Um, And I became eight out of 24. I was the highest independent. And the top five people were elected to the European Union. And me with no campaign, right, almost got elected, right, out of nowhere. So this was in 2019, the year before. So then Irish Freedom Party, or what became Irish Freedom Party, uh, approached me. But the same week as UCD were trying to instigate proceedings of gross misconduct, Irish Freedom Party asked me to resign because I said masks were harmful for children, which they are. Irish Freedom Party. Irish Freedom Party and Herman Kelly. But it turns out what I didn't know is the UK government instigated criminal proceedings to put me in prison for 10 years. But the address of the summonses were the Irish Freedom Party in 2021. For what? What are they trying to get? What were they for trying? organising a meeting of Trafalgar Square in August 2020. They wanted criminal proceedings. Ten years. See, it was ten years in prison. So Boris Johnson, because they, I was getting messages, you know, from the police because we we're in touch with military, that they wanted to Julian Assange me. They really like they were trying to, you know, right take me off the pitch. So. The message was that Boris Johnson was going to increase it if I went ahead as the organizer in August 2020 to put me in prison for 10 years. But the, the those criminal charges were only started on the 15th of March 2021, the same as the uh, gross misconduct of UCD. But it turns out whether they sent them to Irish Freedom Party, allegedly, but Irish Freedom Party asked me to resign because I said masks were harmful for children. But Irish Freedom Party did not tell me about those summonses, so I didn't know. So it looked like, cause I saw the headlines that you hadn't... But I didn't know. No so then I was going to War Freedom Alliance, a big event in Budapest in August of 2021. And there was helicopters and everything. You know, when I was traveling, I knew the police were trying to even unlawfully get me, right? So I wouldn't travel. But when I arrived in Budapest in uh, August 2021, there was worldwide news. There was warrants out for my arrest for a court case that I didn't know about in England. And they had, they ended up convicting me of a criminal offence in England. And the offence was for organising a meeting of more than 30 people outside in August 2020. And what happened? Was you arrested when you stepped off in Budapest? Well, there was lots of police and everything. And then I had difficulty getting back, we'll say. And that took a little bit of time, but I've never been arrested or handcuffed. Uh, it, so at this time, the British government were going full steam ahead with giving people court cases who were defying the orders. Yes. But as time's gone on, it's, it's been proved pretty much impossible for them out of embarrassment to proceed with lots of these cases. Well, there's nine as well. The Irish government then after that sent unlawful summonses they done devo yes but nine they've done similar to me they said that when i returned from ireland right having not been stopped by people dressed as police they just send letters to the post box with that aren't autographed saying the director for public prosecution is charging me with a criminal defense so i have seven or nine of those i've lost count but the one in england then because i had so many other things there's different ways to tackle them but i wrote to boris johnson pretty patel you know the 
uh, all the attorney generals, but also to the chief magistrate of England and Wales. And I issued a promissory note from my trust. So in the newspapers, it said that I had a criminal conviction and it was £3,000 fine. So I issued a promissory note from my trust in the law to the chief magistrate of England and Wales. And then his office wrote back and said I was £500 short. So I issued another promissory note, which then accepted it and quashed the warrant. Now, we don't need to go into that, but I understand the banking system and the legal system, which is actually a criminal misrepresentation of the law. But I had also written to key people, you know, the prime minister, the attorney generals, the president. Making them aware. Making them aware that if they did not accept this promissory note, which is a lawful withdrawal of my trust and also under the Bills of Exchange Act, it would have actually undermined the whole banking system in, in the city of London if they didn't accept it, right? So in a way, that's what I've been doing is put myself in a position because in the law, you just need one man or woman to stand up against an unlawful infringement on your freedom of speech or your ability to meet. And you can challenge the individual, whoever, if it is Paul Goldspring or whatever, who's acting as the chief magistrate. But what they're actually doing in trying to put us in prison for 10 years for speaking to 30 people or more is actually a crime of malfeasance in law in England today. For the individual, no one is above the law. So we now have standing by me organizing that meeting in the law, you just need one man or woman to stand up as a precedence, and that defends everybody's rights. So what I was doing, and very honored to do in 2020, and, and have been doing since, and in the World Freedom Alliance, and in the airline Freedom Travel Alliance, we had, you know, 100,000 subscribers, 7,000 members, thousands of people we've helped, you know, bring, go to funerals or go to weddings or whistleblowers is that if there is one group of people that defends people's right to travel and push back, that defends everybody's travel, not just for COVID-19, but for a climate change lockdown. And part of everything I've done is to have a worldwide network that we can prepare because Agenda 21 is the agenda for this century. So there's another 77 years. So we are now building the networks, right, including free speech, and we need to do it around media to get our message out, right, that people understand what we're doing. But we are now ready that if they say there's a new variant or there's a climate change agenda lockdown. that locked down the world, that we now have the network. And what I'm saying, for as long as I'm alive, I will. we're building a network of cooperative movements like the 700 nurses in Sweden could be a cooperative. And while it's feasible for as long as I'm here, that if they come after one nurse in England, you know, in this cooperative movement that I'm building... Yep. Um, which is to then advance the trial by jury system and restore accountability and justice. And the first uh, trial by jury we want to do is in Oxford. Uh, we want to do with the fifteen-minute city. A right to do with the fifteen-minute city. We we want to have a trial one. For those that year. don't know, Oxford's uh, trial city where they've been practicing the fifteen-minute ghettos under United Nations to lock people in, yes, and then will. we want to have. Now, I would love to get a football stadium and have the mock example of how a trial by jury works so that people don't need to understand the law they can see so the example might be you know an 80 year old who they're saying you have to pay 20 pounds to go to the other part of oxford you know that's the reality yeah, yeah, that's what it's going to be you and can only we're going to have amount of times a year exactly other than yeah. that you have to apply and they'll have one way in one way out yes with cameras so you'll but they're also saying the money that if you will say move go more than 100 times to they're another part of oxford you have to pay 20 pounds a, a, a day 
But say the example would then be, you know, two eight-year-old sisters that visit each other every day. And then someone says, you now have to pay money. The trial by jury would be that eight-year-old would accuse or whatever, say to the counsel, the man who's written the letter, I don't, I have freedom of travel. I should not have to pay 20 pounds. And then the trial by jury would investigate, is it lawful to charge money to go from one side of your town to another? But we are hoping to do like a big event in order to teach people about trial by jury. And we're rolling it out in England, uh, which is, and we're all working together to heal the bonds, you know, in a way between England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. And I'm working with Mixdot and with about 30 people who know the law as well. Yeah. Have you found that people three years ago who didn't listen to you are now more susceptible to believe some of these things? Because the hardest problem I think we have, or anyone in it, with COVID, with lockdowns, with mandates, with vaccines, is getting the average member of the British public to accept that the government are there to help, that these big pharmaceutical businesses are damaging them to become reliant upon them. So it's big business. How do you get the average person to accept that? Well, I think... Without I, saying, without say, without them saying, you're mad. So I think, you know, I think maybe a, a significant proportion of the population may never want to go there because I think a lot of the time I think people think the government and when they're on the BBC or RTE that it's like they love these people in a way. You know, they think that they're like part of their family. And I think for some people, and I think my thing, why they took the vaccine is that they didn't want to uncover, you know, or go into a thing that they mightn't have that many friends or family in real life. And they feel a, a bond really to the BBC and to the government that they would prefer to live as if everything is actually okay and what we're saying is not true because if they were to find out that their doctor injected them multiply with something that now they're breathless but that their doctor who they trust and the BBC that that almost is overwhelming and would be an overwhelming it would be like a a loss or bereavement Mm. and that they would prefer their whole world would shatter so I think that And I think we have to embrace them. It's a choice, you know. And so I am never antagonistic to people. All in in law as well and morally, all we have to do is to do our best to tell the truth. And if people, everyone has free will. And if they prefer to get the injection, which I wouldn't get myself, in order to believe that the doctor that they trust is on their side, because you see, everyone knows they're going to die at some stage and they're going to go to hospital and they're going to go to a care home, that if if you didn't have very many family and friends and you go open up this, you know, rabbit hole or whatever, then you would be really worried, well, what will happen to me if I go into, if I confront my doctor, if I go into hospital, right? So I think a lot of people are living really, and, and maybe they also have a fear of death, you know, because a lot of the time they took the vaccine either from a loving place that they believed the, to take the vaccine to protect people or whatever. But I also think what, and what I'm doing now, I'm in the phase of what I call enterprise supporting sovereignty, is that it's really important that we all work together. And if we have businesses, if someone has a dentist or a hairdresser or a hotel or a restaurant, and they make a commitment to say, I will not impose on people's bodily integrity ever 
for masks or PCR, or I will, if they have a gym or whatever, n always um, assert people's rights, right? So, so the thing is, if you're a member in the law, member of a cooperative, a member of a private member's association, you can always exert your rights in law to travel or whatever. And so what we need to do now is to support businesses that will defend people's rights and people. And then you have an alternative. So you have a care home that says you will always visit your loved one. You will not die alone, you know. So what we need to do is to build the home education system and to challenge the services that are provided by the government. That's, That's the, the phase that I'm going into now. Um, Dolores, I think I could sit here and talk to you for <laughs> hours and hours and hours. I know you've got to, you've got to go. You've got to get to the airport. That's okay. Um, I thank you for your time. I'll ask you one. Just finish on. What advice would you give to anyone if they try to bring back another pandemic? Or what, what advice would you give to anyone around around all of this? Um, I think I would love if people would maybe learn a little bit about the law, right? Because and it's quite simple. So I also have a Telegram channel at Dolores Cahill. Um, and custodian is a website custodian.com yep. c-u-s-t-o-d-e-a-n.com but I think what I would do is for people to take the time to learn a little bit that no one can really stop you traveling and, the, and to be prepared and educate themselves mm -hmm. as much as they can to say no I will not but the other thing as well is that we need to protect the children in school so we do want to work together and we're doing it in the trial by jury in Oxford is to get people to work together as a community. So people find it hard to learn on their own. But if you can get to know your community and to talk to like-minded people, it makes it less overwhelming. So I would say to try and build a network of people to prepare, you know, within your village or within your community and then learn as much as you can and then also try and be entrepreneurial as well and, and also look after your health, you know yourself to make themselves as strong and also to build networks so if they have fallen out with their family to not focus on things like COVID-19 or the vaccine and just rebuild their family connections and their local connections and strengthen themselves to prepare for what's coming but you know we prepare will succeed coming. prepare for what's coming what's prepare coming? for what's coming what's well coming? I mean they, in their so in Agenda 21 their plan is to um, infringe on people's right to travel and also, so in the law, you have these rights to life, travel, speech, privacy, and property. So also your privacy and your money, uh, access to your money is coming down the tracks. So and they are, look, that is the central bank central digital BTC, currency. BTC. Yeah. And also the thing about travel, whether it's under the guise of a new variant or climate change. So what people need to do is to just say to themselves, like I did, to challenge people and say, no, you cannot tell me I can't travel more than five miles and then be prepared to travel. And be but prepared also, to resist it and yes. prepared to... And then there conflicts. is an organisation, Guardians 300, that I was involved in and we trained 120,000 people um, in one-day courses, all free, given by 90 trainers. And that is part of the same network that we're doing to educate people about trial by jury. So I'm working with Big Stott and the Guardians 300 and the, his network of veterans. There are four million of them okay. across... Yeah, yeah, Britain and Ireland, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for your so time. So that's what I would do, is just get engaged, yeah? Thank you for your time. You're looking at two people who are totally censored. <laughs> we're totally silenced. Whether you agree with our opinions or not, we, we, we have a right to have our opinion. Freedom of speech will not be taken away. Share this everywhere you can. 
if you want to follow Dolores, give her your support as well. Thank you. And um, it's been a pleasure. And thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for interviewing. Cheers, Don. Carry on watching for more interesting guests. I'll talk to anyone. I'll debate anyone. I'll hear anyone's story. If you want to help me along that way, it's not free. I need your support. If you can support my family, that gives me my peace of mind. It means I can continue to do the work I do. You can do so at www.supporttommy.com. I appreciate every bit of support, as do my children. It gives me the ability to fly them out here to see me so I can stay in constant contact with them. I'm de-platformed and I'm censored, so I need you. I need you to share this content. Make sure you stay tuned for upcoming weekly guests, interesting guests, exciting guests. I'm Tom Robson, and this has been my podcast, Silence.